day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if all, I've, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. See what's happening here at the Lord's Supper and why that actually matters. I want us just to look at three things this morning. The guests of the supper, uh, the, the nature of the supper, and the grace of the supper. First of all, the guests. I mean, who's actually part of this dinner party that Jesus was hosting? Who are the disciples at this meal? Well, keep in mind that in those days, the people that you ate with really, really mattered, just like it does today in many contexts. Think of the junior high lunchroom. Sorry to bring back traumatic memories for some of you. Uh, Some of us, it was farther away than others. But in those days, I remember, um, you know, eating with a certain group of people every time. And I remember being asked about that age, Someone who didn't know me just met me and said, are you a skater or are you a prep? Because apparently in the 1990s, those were the only two categories that most people knew in junior high. And, and of course, there were more than just those two categories, but they all ate together. Soccer kids played with soccer kids and ate together. Football team ate with a football team. Honor students with honor students. Band kids with band kids. Gamers with gamers. The same thing was kind of going on in Jesus' day, only they had very different categories because their life was defined by the fact they were under Roman occupation, and their responses to that kind of divvied up the different groups. There was, there was one group, the zealots, the zealot table, if you want to call it that. They were the political activists that were looking to overthrow the Roman occupiers by force and violence. One group. And then maybe you might say opposite them, there was another group. They, they called themselves the Essenes. They were basically the separatist monks of their day. They were against expressions of violence and against anger. They were the voices crying out in the wilderness. Another set of opposites in that day were, included the Pharisees. Uh, they believed that God would bring about his Messiah and overthrow the Romans if only they could faithfully, sufficiently keep God's law and get others to do the same so they added to the law their own traditions. You might consider them the cultural conservatives of their day. And, and yet the Sadducees, they were the opposite end from them. The, together they held a lot of power with the Pharisees. The Sadducees, though, were like the wealthy elites of their day. They rejected the traditions of the Pharisees and were probably considered by most to be the cultural progressives of their day. In the midst of this all, there were the Roman officials and those who worked for them, most notoriously the tax collectors. And as different as these groups were, what they all had in common is that Jesus actually had followers amongst all of them. That's who made up Jesus' disciples. That's who was actually at this last supper. And so imagine that somebody paid who knows how much money to be a fly on the wall, to be able to spy on this, this last supper, and then later on report to you as a friend about what they saw. That report might go something like this. Well, the host was this rabbi 
who somehow managed to get followers from both sides of the aisle, from both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they were so afraid to publicly identify with him that they would often only meet with him at night. Many of them once followed John the Baptist, who surely looked a lot like an Essene to me. I mean, did you hear the types of things he was saying? Did you see how he lived? Oh, and then one of them, this guy named Simon, was a straight-up zealot. You know, the group trying to overthrow the Romans by violence? Yeah. Yeah, he was there, but guess who else was at that same table? Matthew. You remember him? The the tax collector? The white-collar criminal working for the very Romans, collecting the taxes that fund the soldiers that are oppressing us. Yeah, he was there too, and you know what kind of company he usually keeps. He'd probably go on to describe James and John, two burly, blue-collared fishermen who Jesus once called the Sons of Thunder. Quite the delicate name. Maybe because once when Jesus was entering a city with them and they weren't accepting Jesus, they asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I'm sure they were easy to get along with. Then he started talking about Thomas, a skeptic there who would later doubt all of his friends and what they would say about Jesus until he said he could see it for him very own eyes. In the middle of it all was this guy named Peter, a hothead who constantly put his foot in his mouth and was rumored to have once in a rage almost cut off a Roman soldier's head. Said he had to settle for an ear. Guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> and your first thought might have been, man, it's a good thing the disciples didn't have Facebook back then. <laughs> you see, those at the supper were from different political, different social, different economic backgrounds. It was like the perfectly cast reality TV show that you tune in just to see who's going to go crazy first. What did they have in common? Well, all of them would have actually heard echoes of what they valued most in Jesus, and yet all would have also struggled as Jesus was communicating to them and living out for them his gospel, how it was always different than what they thought it would be and how it always took them longer to get it than we think it should take. And it could have been tempting for any of them in their day to assume Jesus was, of course, fully in their own camp. And they could make valid points, too. For example, a zealot could say, you know, one of Jesus' closest followers was a zealot, and he was always talking about establishing God's kingdom, God's kingdom being at hand. Isn't that what our revolution is trying to bring about? You know, an Essene could point to the fact that Jesus prayed like an Essene 40 days in the wilderness before he started his ministry. That looks a lot like an Essene to me. Pharisees might one day point out the fact that Jesus uh, had a converted Pharisee named Paul be his first church planter. Well, the Romans and the tax collectors would want to chime in and say, hey, remember, remember he taught everybody you should pay your Roman taxes. And just when they thought they had Jesus figured out, he would go ahead and throw them a curveball and actually have the nerve to challenge their views. You see, the Pharisees were all about strict adherence uh, to the law and establish the traditions of theirs to help accomplish that, but, but Jesus wouldn't follow their traditions and yet showed his followers the deeper sense of God's law and its fulfillment. The Essenes were about separation, and yet Jesus was often keeping company with those that you might not want to get too close to. And yet Jesus was set apart for God's work like no one else. The zealots wanted to establish God's kingdom so badly they were willing to use acts of violence to make it happen. And yet Jesus would later tell Peter to put away his sword, and yet would go on to establish God's kingdom in a way that they never expected. Tax collectors, they were in bed with the Romans. 
and they were known to shake down their fellow Jews for just an extra shilling so they could pocket the surplus taxes. And yet we see at the conversion of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, that when someone encounters Jesus, their view of power and their view of money would be forever changed. Not just calling people to give to the government what's theirs, but to give to God what's God's. See, at some point, Jesus would have challenged all of those who would claim to be his followers, who would long to be his followers, while at the same time showing a deeper concern for what they valued than actually they did. See, the guests of the supper actually tell us something just by who was there. It tells us that Jesus can't be understood as fitting neatly with any single man-made political party, social group, or philosophical system. It was true then, and it's true today. That means is that if the Jesus of our imaginations wouldn't appeal to such a broad variety of people, and if he couldn't challenge us in our own thinking, it's probably not the real Jesus, because the real Jesus defies any partisan expectation we place on him. That's what made Jesus so hard to pin down in his day, and it really should be no different for his followers this day. Jerem Bars, a professor at Covenant Seminary, once told a story of a Bible study that he started years ago where he was probably the only Christian in the room. They met week after week and, and month after month. He would, he would say things. He would not say certain things that would baffle them. In fact, after a while, they finally came to him and said, could you please tell us who you really are? We can't figure out if you're really a closet liberal or a closet conservative. Tell us where you're really coming from couldn't quite figure him out. And yet if people can't quite figure us out, if we don't fit too neatly into their preconceived categories and notions, especially when we gather with others, that, that might be a good thing. It might mean that we're actually reflecting the one that we follow. See, the people Jesus was gathering were so different from each other, they finally needed to invent a brand new word to describe his disciples, Christians. They were first called at Antioch. See, the people were gathering were gathered together, as different as they were, they actually had one thing in common. They were actually all very deeply flawed people. You see, Judas was known to be motivated by money and actually would sell out Jesus for only 30 pieces of silver, all the while been helping himself to the money bag, the money that was supposed to go to the poor that instead went to the Judas fund. Peter had already been compared to Satan when he thought that he knew better than Jesus and tried to put Jesus in his place, of all people. In his inner circle of Peter and James and, and John, as bold as they were about their assertions in their life, they couldn't stay awake for an hour or two to pray for Jesus during his hour of need. Before the night was over, all of them would falter in their faith and desert him out of their own fear. And yet this cast of characters, I mean, this was like tailor-made for a reality TV show today. You would be paying pay-per-view to be able to watch this show. This is who Jesus gathered to be his disciples. This is who actually shared the Last Supper with him. And the fact that he shares this particular meal with this group of fellas actually means a lot more when we consider the nature of the supper. You see, the meal that they were sharing together, it says in those first few verses, was called the Passover feast. It was this annual Jewish ceremonial feast where they would come together with specific instructions on what they're supposed to eat, how to eat it, what to say when you do it, and even who to eat it with. It's those instructions, though, on, on who says what that actually gives us the first clue about what Jesus is actually doing in this passage. You see, the head of the household would preside over a meal, 
And then the children would ask a question, and then the parent would answer that question. You see, from the very beginning, the Passover meal was, was meant to be a household meal. It was a, it was a family meal. It was a meal that you share only with those that you have the strongest bonds with. What we see Jesus doing here is that he's creating a very new kind of family. The reason why different family members had their different roles is that in speaking their different roles, it was meant to teach them and to remind them what the meaning of the supper was. That meaning was found in the worlds that the parents and the children would, would ask and respond with. The words that we find in the book of Exodus, the children would ask the question, what does this ceremony mean? And the parent would answer, well, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. See, the words they'd speak would refer to, uh, were found in the book of Exodus as, as well as the words, as well as what they all meant. See, the book of Exodus was this record of Israelites' a time as slaves in Egypt, and it was then that God sent, you know, Moses to tell the Egyptian pharaoh in my best Charlton Heston voice, let my people go. If you've seen the movie, you know each time Pharaoh refused. And so God would send a plague to demonstrate his rule over the things the Egyptians thought that their gods ruled over. Nine times this happens. Nine times Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go until the tenth plague. The angel of the Lord would strike down the firstborn of each household in the land that would pass over and spare the Israelites and their family homes. See, this Passover meal would commemorate that event, which, which finally led to their deliverance from Egypt and, and to help them remember. The different participants had their, their different roles. They had their different lines. And at the Last Supper, as they share the Passover meal, Jesus is the presider. He's the one that takes the place of the head of the family. And yet, to his disciples, to surprise, he starts going off script. See, when you get to verse 26, the line that they would expect Jesus to speak is this. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Instead, Jesus breaks the bread and breaks tradition when he says to them, this is my body. And he takes the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's he doing? What's he up to? question actually matters more than you think because just as to forget the Passover and what it points to is to forget what it meant to be an Israelite, to miss what Jesus is pointing to in the Last Supper is actually to miss what it means to be a Christian. See, to grasp what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper, you really need to see the grace of this supper. See, at the first Passover, the reason the angel of God's judgment would pass over the Israelites was because of something that he actually saw. In Exodus 12, 3, it says, Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then the night before the angel would come, they needed to sacrifice that lamb that would be their dinner and then put its blood on their door frames over the top and, and over the sides. You see, that's what the angel of the Lord would, would see. They would see the blood and they would pass over the family that was gathered there. They would be spared, but it would be costly. It would come at the cost of, of the blood, the very life of the lamb. And the reason for that is the scriptures tell us there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood because sin by its very nature crimes against God, wanting to usurp his authority, becoming our own authority, establishing our own kingdom, becoming our own gods, our own savior, is an act of cosmic treason. Every single one, a capital offense. The reason why the lamb was, was so central into all of this 
because it was the one that was sacrificed so that they could be spared. The message of the sacrifice was always this. If God simply treated me the way I deserved, I would be just like the one sacrificed. You see, no Israelite in that land deserved to be spared God's judgment because they were somehow better than their captors, better than the Egyptians. That was the meaning that the sacrificial lamb had for them. And yet we come to the Last Supper. This meal, which is known for the bread and and the cup and the lamb, and, and the bread is there. And the wine is there, but we never hear anything about the lamb. You kind of wonder if the disciples are going, hey, Jesus, this is a nice spread here, but kind of forgetting something. Um, Are we on a diet? Like, where's the lamb? Come on, I mean, I need some meat. You know, I'm hungry. What's he doing here? See, Jesus actually takes up the symbolism of the lamb too, but he does it in a very different way. When, when he's saying to them, and he starts talking about his, his body being broken and his blood being shed, he's talking about more than just bread and, and a cup. He's showing them that the true lamb that all those other lambs point to was actually in their midst. Jesus was claiming to be that sacrificial lamb, the one that John the Baptist called the lamb of God who takes away sins, the one that the apostle Paul called Christ, our Passover lamb. And yet telling them, Everything you understand about the role of the Passover lamb finds its fulfillment in me. See, just as the lamb that brought salvation is eaten the night before God's deliverance, Jesus is telling them, so I am the true lamb of God who saves you, not from the angel of judgment, but from sin and death themselves. Jesus is saying he would be that sacrifice, not some cute, furry, four-legged creature, but his body would be broken, his blood would be shed. He's the one who would actually offer himself as a sacrifice so that others could be spared. Last night I was uh, reading a, an article about what happened in the city of Mosul in, in Iraq earlier this week. It was in the battle to retake the city uh, from ISIS that an Iraqi soldier was driving a Humvee while he spotted a fast-moving vehicle likely to be loaded with explosives heading right for him and his fellow troops. In front of him, he saw the troops. In his rearview mirror, he saw what looked like certain death. Ahead of him was an escape. Behind him was certain death. What followed was caught on camera as the soldier put the Humvee in reverse and intercepted the speeding vehicle just as it exploded. Many commentators, even days after the fact, have already described the soldier's actions as the ultimate sacrifice, which led to saving countless others, his fellow soldiers, his comrades, his brothers in arms, in a very real sense, his family. Jesus, too, would offer his life in sacrifice. But, but sacrificed for who? For, for which family would be spared? Remember who Jesus is talking to here. Not just members of rival groups, but someone who boldly declared his loyalty and then let Jesus down when it mattered the most. A skeptic who would famously struggle with his doubts. A whole room of people that would struggle in their walk of faith that night and abandon him in fear. Verse 31, Jesus says to them, This very night you will all fall away. Prophecy fulfilled just a few verses later when it says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. It's not that they ceased to be his disciples, but they failed to stand with him when it mattered the most in the face of persecution. They would all falter. 
they would all stumble in their walks of faith. And yet without Jesus' words to them that night at that table, they might have asked themselves, do I really belong at this table? Back in, in middle school, uh, a guy named Brad Church invited me to the cool kids' table. Let me tell you, at this point, I had definitely not established myself as belonging at a table that remotely came anywhere near to that. I'd actually done a lot to establish my presence at the opposite table. But Brad invited me, so I decided I would go, and while he was still in line, I, I took my seat, knowing he would join us in just a moment. Sitting across from me was, was Chris Robbins. Y'all remember middle school? Remember, like, the one that could, like, grow a beard before anybody else even knew what a razor looked like? Yeah, that was Chris best athlete on the team, most beautiful girlfriend, all of that. And he looked at me and he asked the question that was probably on everyone's mind, including my own. What are you doing here? And it got me thinking, do I really belong here? At this table, have I really passed the test of belonging here? Friends, the test for belonging at Jesus' table is not our social standing, not our political affiliation, not our great accomplishments, but actually our greatest failures, our common need of a Savior. So by now you're probably wondering, well, what about Judas? I mean, wasn't he at this table too? Didn't he also hear Jesus' words of grace? Well, let's look at Judas. When Jesus says that one of them would betray him, in verse 22 it says that each of them says in turn, surely not I, Rabbi, sorry, surely not I, Lord. It's the one thing Judas could not call him. While everyone else is saying, surely not I, Lord. In verse 25, Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. In fact, throughout all the gospel records, Judas only calls Jesus Rabbi or teacher, but never Lord, the way that the rest of the disciples do here. You see, Judas addresses Jesus differently because Judas sees Jesus differently. See, all of them actually would let Jesus down. All of them needed forgiveness, but only Judas refused to turn to him as Lord, as the one who can actually forgive sins, as the one who all sins were ultimately against. Only Judas refused to turn to Jesus as Lord to actually receive that forgiveness. As another pastor put it, Judas was not damned because he was greedy or because he was a failure. He was damned because he didn't think he needed Jesus, because he didn't see the grace of the supper. Rankin Wilburn, a pastor in Los Angeles, describes grace like this. Unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Let's say that again. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It's not sin and such that made Judas a lost person, only his repudiation of grace. See, it wasn't his failure that separated him from the rest of the disciples. That's actually what they had in common with him. They all failed Jesus. They all hurt him in their different ways that night, just as Jesus knew that they would. Let me ask you this. When you think of, of Jesus... Is he your teacher? Is he your rabbi? Or is he your Lord? 
Is he the one that you see primarily as teaching you how to do better? How to get right with God through your best efforts at good morals, good religion, and good works? Or is he your Lord, who is also the Lamb, who takes away your sins? Turning to Jesus that way would actually be the hardest for those of us with the most confidence in our own abilities. So in verse 33, Peter, who has no shortage of confidence, says he can't imagine his own faltering and boldly declares his undying loyalty, which, of course, the rest of the disciples follow in suit. You can't be outdone by Peter. And yet falter Peter would, just as Jesus predicts in verse 34. He would deny him three times before the night is over. And yet, just as Jesus said, when they finally strike him, his followers would all scatter. Even the boldest of Jesus' disciples was not immune to trying times. Some of you, maybe 10 years ago or so, might have, have read uh, some of the letters um, or translated into English um, that were written uh, by Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a Catholic nun famous for spending most of her life serving the poorest of the poor in India. The shock that a lot of people got from reading those letters was that they revealed her own doubts, her own uncertainty, her own struggles in her walk of faith. Many couldn't imagine, how could such a a woman of of deep faith struggle with such deep doubts to the point that in her own words she would say she would struggle to see Jesus even while she was serving him? Well, Peter spent three years seeing Jesus, eyeball to eyeball, walking with him, And if three years walking with Jesus couldn't guarantee someone's faithfulness, you might start to wonder what certainty can there really be. See, what they needed was a better source of certainty, something better than their own faithfulness. And that's what Jesus gives them in verse 28. When he starts talking about the covenant, in fact, in in Luke's gospel, we actually see uh, a fuller version of this when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood what we heard about in the scripture reading earlier that Rena was reading. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah spoke about this new covenant in those verses that we heard. He said that it would not be like the old covenant made with those who came out of Egypt, the covenant that they were constantly breaking. See, the weakness of the old covenant was not the covenant itself, but human weakness, our own lack of faithfulness, a covenant that says, do this and you will live, and then we realize we can't do it the way that we're supposed to. So at the center of What scripture often calls the new covenant is one who is faithful. You see, later that night, Jesus' faithfulness would be tested, just like the disciples were tested. See, when Jesus asked God the Father if there was any other way of accomplishing the forgiveness that this new covenant offered, any other way other than what lay before him, aside from the pain, the shame, the humiliation, of being abandoned not only by friends, but abandoned by God on the cross to bear the penalty for his followers' sin. Apart from Jesus taking what we deserve so we can receive what he deserved. If there is any other way, he asked, let's do that. And yet God the Father says, no, there is no other way. Only Jesus could do what was needed to accomplish our own salvation. Only he was worthy to be the true Lamb of God. Not, not, not simply someone to spare the firstborn of a family, but God offering his firstborn to spare his family. And faced with the unfaithfulness of his followers, how would Jesus respond? 
See, just like that soldier in, in Mosul, sitting in the Humvee, there were two realities before him, and he had a choice to make. See, Jesus, when he looked to his disciples, he looked to them that very night, their inability to watch and pray with him that night, their willingness to deny him out of fear, their own faltering, their own failing, their own misplaced confidence, their doubts, their fears, their failings, how unworthy they were. And yet looked at the other reality, the reality of the cross, the pain, the humiliation, being separated from God, the horror of absorbing God's wrath for sins for his people. And then looking ahead to looking at us, our failings, our own unfaithfulness, how unworthy we were, and looking to the cross and what it would actually take to redeem us. Jesus looked to us, and he looked to the cross. He looked to us, and then he looked to the cross. He looked to us, and then as he looked to the cross, he looked to the Father and said, let's do this. Because it was never about us, our faithfulness, but about him, his faithfulness. And it was only after Jesus' death and his burial, his resurrection, that they'd fully realized what Jesus was doing at that last supper and why it's the one thing that later he would tell his disciples to continually do in remembrance of him, not something remembering a teaching or a miracle or an example, but something to remember his death. It's what we call today the Lord's Supper. Verse 32. We see the grace of the supper even more in that despite his disciples' unfaithfulness, Jesus says that he will go ahead of them after his resurrection, literally taking the first step and be united with them in Galilee as, as his people, once again, as his family. Not, not because they were faithful, but because he is faithful. That's why today we as his followers, those who see our own sin, our own failings, take one step after another as we come forward to this table, not to a rabbi's table, not to some teacher's table, but ultimately to the Lord's table. Why would he go through all of that? For his family. Who is that? Who would Jesus' body be broken for? Who would his blood be shed for? For them. And for us. For political and social adversaries. So that we could become one. For skeptics, so they can find a reason to believe. For those who, who know they need to be forgiven, so they can be forgiven. For those who falter in their faith, so they can be renewed in their faith. For those who know they need a better source of confidence in their own faithfulness. Because Jesus himself is faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this table we come to, this reminder that in the midst of all of our fear, all of our failings, all of our weakness, in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, that Jesus, our Lord, was faithful. That he gives us a better reason for confidence than our own abilities, but instead his body and his blood. Speak to us anew, refresh us anew, renew us again as we come to you at this table. Amen.